Well, thank you, Mike, for your tireless service to the Lord and the Lord's church. It's been a joy. <clears throat> I, remember, I think I remember the first time you visited Cornerstone at our flock, and you told me you were here for right doctrine, but I knew why you were here at Cornerstone. <laughs> I've, uh, right? I wasn't born yesterday, but, you know, hey, you know, still preach the word, and our plan worked, and, you know, God caused you to commit to Christ church. It's been a joy just watching you grow and watching Mike grow as a Christian, as a husband, as a shepherd, a leader, and now as a father. And uh, praise God for just faithful shepherds who labor uh, among us. This definitely is not a one-man show. I'm just one small piece of the machinery that drives the church. I really am. You know, people outside the church might think, oh, you know, who's the pastor? But Within Cornerstone, we know that um, it's not one pastor or one group of people, but it's all of us serving and ministering and caring for one another. Good. Well, I hear a child crying. I fear. Is that Emma? That's, sounds like, okay, good. Okay. <laughs> when you're a father, you're a baby crying. or a child crying. You think, oh, is that my child? No, I'm a pastor. I can't have a child cry. Well, Second Timothy 1.1 one, one. It's going to be a three-part sermon. I know I said two-part, but it's going to be a three-part. And I begin by sharing with you how Koreanness runs deep in my blood. Uh, you guys might not know it, but I am Korean-American. I went to buy frozen yogurt this week. And after purchasing it, I said in Korean, 감사합니다. And she was shocked. She said, you're Korean? I said, yeah, I'm Korean. She said, I had no idea. I thought you were anything but Korean. I was like, what do you mean my Koreanness runs deep in my blood? <laughs> How could you say I'm not Korean? Uh, it, Koreanness runs deep because my, my parents were, my dad was a student at NYU. And after six, I, when I was six months old, they sent me to Korea to be raised by my grandparents. So for the first six years of my life, I was raised in Korea. So the first language I learned was Korean. And all the culture, the traditions, the habits were really just Korean culture reared in me. And a key distinct, I guess a key uh, quality of Korean culture is respect for elders, respect for those who are older. I mean, so much so, I remember, you know, eating at a meal, and you couldn't start eating until the oldest person ate first, right? You can't dare go after the kalbi until, you know, my grandfather ate the kalbi or the Korean barbecue or the soup. I can't touch the soup until my grandfather touched the soup. So I'd be like, touch the soup. <laughs> touch the steak, because I'm hungry. So you have to wait. You couldn't, uh, when you walk in a room, and you're, someone older is sitting there, you can't show your backside to an adult. You guys didn't know that, right? Because you guys show your backside to me all the time. But when you walk in, you're supposed to walk backwards out, out of, out of respect. And you never did this. You never called someone older by their first name. That was death sentence. And I'm not joking here. I'm not I'm speaking up. I am. But, you know, <laughs> almost. I mean, you, you called your, you know, your older you know, brother or sister by their first name or your aunt or uncle or your parents. Man, game over. Lights out. I mean, it's, it's, it's the end. So imagine my shock coming to America. I go to Walter Reed Junior High School and my friend says, hey, meet my dad, Paul. What do you mean your dad, Paul? His dad's name is Paul. Hey, Paul, this is my friend James. And I was 
ready for a big fight to break out because how can you call your dad by the first name was common practice. Well, this kind of mindset still ingrained in me. I shared this with you guys many times how uh, Professor Pettigrew, you know, we've, I know him. and he's, After a while, he said, James, just call me Larry. I can't call you Larry. You know, cause I, the only Larry I know is the uh, Larry boy from VeggieTales. Right? So I say, Larry, I'm, yeah, I, I know Larry boy is going to just, you know, come out one of these days and get me in big trouble. So I'm comfortable with Professor Pettigrew, Dr. Pettigrew, and so on and so forth. Um, if you, I think last communion, we're making announcements about our flock shepherds, and some of our flock shepherds are pretty smart, you know, those academic types, you know. Right? And so I was calling them, I don't know, I was like, I, I don't usually do this, but I called them by doctor this and doctor that. And I got an email, hey, Pastor James, you know, appreciate that, but, you know, we're in a church, and it's not appropriate, and we want to be humble. Just call us, you know, by our names. That's fine, Mr. This, Mr. That. I said, you know what, that's right. Here... There are no right degrees. You don't respect people what you drive or income or anything, right? Your athletic abilities. We don't respect that, but we respect one another in Christ. <clears throat> so, it's humble and right. Well, I bring all of this up to because a common objection raised in Second Timothy is that Apostle Paul is not writing this letter because. Look at that first verse. Look at how he introduces himself. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. No doubt he used this technical phrase six times in the New Testament. Right? Six times. I mean, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. Each time he begins these letters with this technical identification of himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, 2 Timothy is a personal letter to his son in the faith. It's his dying will and testament and for Paul to begin this letter so formally, so quote-unquote professionally, it seems out of place. So many have said that this is one reason, one clear evidence that Paul could not have written to this. At the very least, some have said, some have questioned Paul's character, um, a mark against Paul's character, insinuating that Paul had signs of great pride and ego where he couldn't say, talk to anyone before reminding them that he was an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, that objection is fair and understandable, especially in light of our Lord's rebuke of the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees? They loved their titles. right? They lo- loved their lofty positions and lofty titles. Matthew 23, 7 he spoke of them, how they loved to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. They loved it. And if anyone forgot to call them rabbi, a swift rebuke would ensue. They loved being called rabbis. Now, we must understand that titles aren't wrong or sinful in and of themselves. No, not at all. Remember First Timothy 6.10, money is not the root of all kinds of evil. What is it? It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. So to say money is evil is not only absurd, but it's unbiblical. Money is a part of life. Money is necessary. It's the love of money that's sinful. Titles are necessary and appropriate, at times respectful. But what Christ condemned is the love of titles, love of these professional titles. Now, 
for Paul, is that what he's guilty of here? Is he esteeming his position as an apostle of Christ? Or even to his own son in the faith? Lest he forget who he is? He identifies himself as an apostle? That is not what is happening here. Paul's self-description of himself as an apostle of Christ was not a reflection of pride or self-glory. He was not flaunting his position of authority. I believe that was the furthest thing from his mind. I mean, we know the Apostle Paul. We know him intimately. We know his utter lowliness, his humility, his contrite character. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, he refers to himself as the least of all apostles. In 1 Timothy, he says he's the worst of all sinners. And let us remember where the context in which he's writing this letter. He's writing this letter from a cold, dark, dank dungeon. He's a prisoner of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 8. He's chained like a criminal. Verse 16. He's suffering. So are you kidding me? For Paul to be exalting himself here, I believe is the furthest thing from his mind. Paul here was asserting his position by describing himself in this official title to encourage Timothy. To give him strength in his, in his heart. To grant him courage. And to remind him that this is a personal letter. In this way, it's, he's writing directly to Timothy, but he's writing to all the churches. He understands that. That he wants this letter to be read publicly in the churches of God. Um, if you were to go to the end of the letter, in 2 Timothy 4.21, you would note that Paul tells T- Timothy, do your best to come to me before winter. That your is singular. Do your best. You come to me. Eubulus uh, sends you greetings, singular. Right. The Lord be with your spirit, verse 22, singular. The last sentence of this letter is grace be with you, and that last you is plural. Grace be with you all. So though it was a personal letter, his ultimate intention was not just for Timothy's ears and eyes, but for the universal church. So he was reminding Timothy, reminding the church, that this is not just a personal letter, it's an apostolic letter, a letter that is inspired, containing the oracles of God, the burden of God, the message of God for all of us to read, study, and to benefit from. I mean, not only that, we know Paul. If apostle was his first self-identity, his second self-identity was servant. He often identified himself as a servant of Christ. For example, Romans 1.1, Titus 1.1. In Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, servant is son doulos. Not just doulos, but son doulos, which is the lowest slave. Doulos is slave. He says the exceeding slave, the lowest galley slave, the one who was enslaved to the ship, chained to the ship, no hope of, of rescue, no hope of escape, bound to the ship. He's going down with the ship if it, if it is sunk. For Paul, no way this was in some way boasting of himself. No way is this an argument against Pauline authorship. It is 
truly Pauline, uh, showing us that he's writing to us for our benefit. Well, a brief review of last week. Quick review, I'll try to go through it as quick as possible, and we'll get to our study. Remember last week we began with the first book of the Bible, Job. And men complained about the silence of God. The silence of God is deafening. We are suffering. We're undergoing pain and torture. The chaos of life is such that, that it is unbearable, and yet God is silent. And he, the writer of Hebrews argues, no, God is not silent. Long ago, from the beginning, God spoke. Many times, not just once, not just few times, but God spoke to us many times, in many diverse ways. But always through His prophets, always through His messengers, His heralds, those who carried the burden of the Lord and carried the message of God to us. Now, Hebrews 1-2 says, In these last days, in this last dispensation, God has spoken to us by His Son, Jesus Christ. John 1-18 will spend some time later on um, expositing this verse, explicating this verse. But John 1-18 says, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known, who has exegeted Him, who has revealed Him. In these last days, God has revealed Himself to us through His Son, and the apostles interpret the Son to us. The apostles give us Christ's message, explain to us Christ's message, and apply Christ's message, and give us a glimpse of the future, like Revelation Jude, first, second Peter, first, second Thessalonians. So as the prophets carried the message of God, the apostles carried the message of Christ to to us through the Holy Scriptures. Right, simply put, a, a, prophets were to God what the apostles are to Jesus Christ. The prophets spoke for God, apostles speak for Jesus Christ. Now last week, uh, I shared with you three criteria that qualified a man to be called an apostle of Christ Jesus. Three, three criteria. Every week, I study a little bit more, and I learn a little bit more. Right? It's a good thing and a bad thing, I guess. But look at it from a positive light. Okay? I learned that there are actually four criteria rather than three. So I'll give you one more. I'll, I'll start off with the, what I learned. An apostle of Christ must be of Messiah's nation. An apostle of Christ must be from the, from, Messiah, from the Messiah's nation. He must be a Jew. Matthew 10.6, Christ was sent the lost sheep of Israel. In their first mission, they were ordered <clears throat> not to go nor to preach to any others than Jews. The Jews were entrusted, Romans 3, 1 and 2, with the oracles of God, the burden of God, the messages of God. Deuteronomy 18, 15, a key verse. So if you ever meet, you talk with a Muslim, and they say the honorable Elijah, no, honorable prophet Muhammad, you tell them, well, Deuteronomy 18, 5. You meet a Jehovah's Witness and Charles Taze Russell, Deuteronomy 18, 5. You meet Joseph Smith, not Joseph Smith, but the followers of Joseph Smith, right? You, you meet um, you know, followers of Brigham Young, 
Deuteronomy 18.5, you meet a follower of Reverend Sung Myung Moon. Sung Myung Moon, right? Is he a Jewish Korean? No. He's full Korean, right? You can tell. See his picture? Fully Korean. You meet a follower of the uh, Moonies, Deuteronomy 18.5. What does it say? The Lord, will, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So all subsequent messengers of God will be from the brothers of Israel, from the family of Israel. So all future prophets, and every single one was from the Jewish nation. All the apostles, every single one from the Jewish nation. If you are not a Jew, you are not a prophet. Prophet of God. You're a false prophet. If you are not a Jew, you're not an apostle. The first qualification is you must be from the nation of Israel. Apostle Paul is from the nation of Israel. Though he ministered to the Gentiles, his lineage, and we studied that months ago. It's Hebrew origin. Second qualification, second criteria is that criterion is that he's an eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ, to the resurrected Christ. An eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, of the risen Lord. Acts one twenty two. they had to replace Judas, and they take lots of, of, of two men, and they both fit the qualifications. And the one that they mention is that they're eyewitnesses of the risen Lord. And Paul makes much of this in defending his apostolic authority. In 1 Corinthians 9, Have I not seen the Lord? 1 Corinthians 15.8, He appeared also to me. The third is that he is directly called, appointed, commissioned by Jesus Christ. A personal call. Christ, they are witnesses to Christ, the risen Christ. The risen Christ comes to him and Christ appoints them, ordains them, commissions them to be apostles. So it's not, you don't enlist to be an apostle. You don't take tests. You don't try out, right? You don't apply to be an apostle. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You have to be chosen by Christ personally, directly, immediately. Matthew 10, Acts 26. We read all those passages last week. Galatians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1, 12. I thank him who has given me strength because he appointed me to his service. 1 Timothy 2.7 I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. So you have to be a Jew, eyewitness, third appointed. The fourth is more of a proof, but also it qualifies you. Your life must be marked, your ministry must be marked by performance of signs and wonders and miracles. You're abounding in miraculous works. <clears throat> so that parallel, Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles. Right? So it helps us to understand that. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. And this is exactly what happened in the Old Testament. People think miracles abounded in the Old Testament, but it didn't. Like You turn one page and it's like 300 years. Right? You turn one page and 600 years. Like, when, when the Israelites were in Egypt for 900 years, no miracles, not a single one. Right? Miracles were rare. If miracles are commonplace, they're not miracles. Right? No, it's common. That's not a big deal. Happens every day. Miracles are, are powerful because they're so unique. 
And they always accompany messengers of God to confirm that they are from God, that they're indeed been sent by the Lord. And we see this in Exodus chapter 4. You know, God and Moses are having a debate, having an argument. God says, Moses, go. I don't want to go. I'm not able. Chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, they will not believe me, nor listen to my voice. For they will say, how do we know? The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. Put it put on your hand, verse 4, and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. It became a staff in his hand. First miracle, first sign that God did indeed, Yahweh indeed appealed, appeared to Moses. Right. Verse 5, why? That they may believe that the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the fathers, has appeared to you. I've given you this ability to perform this miracle, not to become a you know, curiosity, not to become an act, not to gather a crowd, but to demonstrate that this power proves, confirms, validates that Yahweh has indeed appeared to you. Well, one's not enough. One more. Verse 6, put your hand inside your cloak. When he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Put your back inside, and it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Sign number 2. Sign number three, verse eight, even if, if they still will not believe in you, God said, or listen to the first or the second, verse nine, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So these three miracles were sufficient for the nation of Israel. When the, when the leaders of Israel, the elders gathered together and saw these miracles, they said, Moses, Yahweh has sent you. He is a faithful God. A good and merciful God, remembering His covenant to Abraham, we will follow you. Let's go to the promised land. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, Yahweh has sent me and let my people go. And what is Pharaoh's response? Who is Yahweh that I should listen to His voice? That I should obey His voice? So Moses said, okay, I'll show you Conformatory signs to prove that Yahweh has sent me. He does that uh, staff miracle and the enemies of God, they imitate, they, they mimic with trickery, with sorcery, the same magic trick. They know it's fake, but it's a pretense to keep them enslaved. They replicate the miracle. With the hand, they replicate the miracle by trickery, by sleight of hand. With the blood on the Nile, same thing. So Pharaoh says, look, my, our gods are as strong as your God. We will not listen to Yahweh. Therefore, God sends more miracles accompanying Moses, confirming his authority as a prophet of God and also indicting Pharaoh and his false gods of Egypt, the ten plagues. Right? Plague after plague were all miracles and they had many manifold messages. But one key message for us in our study is that it confirmed that Moses was truly a prophet of God. This is repeated throughout the Old Testament. All the, all the prophets of God were accompanied by validating signs and miracles like uh, Elijah with the priests of Baal, right? With the fire from heaven. Daniel in the den of lions, right? Miracle. I mean, so on and so on and so on. Same with Jesus Christ. Our Lord came and for three and a half years He performed miracles. Why? Show the people of Israel 
that he was truly sent by God. But we studied this in John, right? Their hearts were not like Israel. Their hearts were like Pharaoh. Their hearts were hardened. Every time Christ performed a miracle, instead of melting like butter, they were hardened like clay. They became more boisterous, more hardened, more proud, and they just demanded more and more signs. The few remnant of Israel, true believers, their hearts were softened, they saw one miracle, and they ran to Christ for salvation in tears. They hung on His feet, washed His feet with their tears and with their hair. The true Israelites, their hearts melted, but by and large, Israel, their hearts were like Pharaoh. So God hardened their hearts with the miracles. But for the true believers, their hearts melted, like Nicodemus in John 3. Remember, he, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, a member of the Pharisees. He came to Jesus at night because he was fearful of the leaders of Israel. And what did he say to Christ? We know you are a teacher come from God, Rabbi. We know that. For no one can do these signs unless God is with him. So prophets, Jesus Christ, and the apostles. The apostles came, right? They were Jews. They, were, they saw the risen Lord. They were commissioned by Christ. And they were able to perform signs, wonders, and miracles to confirm, to show, to demonstrate that they weren't ordinary men. They were unique men commissioned by Christ, by God Himself. So, Acts 2.43, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Acts 4, 13 through 16, that lame man in Acts 3 was healed, right? Peter and John, silver or gold I don't have, what I have I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he went walking and running and rejoicing in the Lord, praising the Lord. This was done in the temple courts. The leaders of Israel saw it. They arrest these men. And this is what they were saying in the council. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. We cannot deny what they have done. Acts 4.33 With great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Acts 5.12 Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles not for their own glory, own honor, all to confirm their message, the gospel of Christ. God bore witness by these miracles. God gave them sanction of His authority. And in this way, they testified boldly for Christ. Now here is Apostle Paul, one abnormally born, because he was not in the gospels. He was called later as an apostle to the Gentiles. So that stigma followed him wherever he went. Paul, an apostle of Christ. Ah, you're no apostle. Matthew 10, your name's not on the list. Right? I have Matthew, I have Luke, and you're not in it. You're, You're one of those, like, you know, dime store apostles, right? Like swap meet apostles. You ever go to swap meet and you look at, like, a package of Q tip and it's really O tip, right? Close, but not close enough. And you buy it and you stick it in your ear and it's like really hard. It's not cotton. It's polyester, right? Or you buy, we sell things that are like this at our store, right? It's like Duracell. The color is the same, but the packaging says Duracell, but the battery doesn't say Duracell, right? Knockoff. 
right? Made in that country over there, right? We, sell, we don't sell Sonys at our store. We sell Kobe's, right? Close, but the quality is not close. They're saying, Paul, you're a cheap knockoff. You're a false apostle. Right? You're not. Sent by Christ, and Christ said, 2 Corinthians 12, I'm a fool, but you forced me to do it. You, 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 you forced me to defend myself. And that's humiliating for any spiritual leader, right? Any, any parent where you have to defend your love for your child and they grow up and say, oh, you never loved me. What? Man, you know, right? That's humiliating for a parent, for a spiritual leader, for Apostle Paul. He says, I'm a fool, but you, you forced me to it. I ought to have been commended by you. Instead, you attack me. You criticize me. You undermine my authority. I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, as you call it. Second Corinthians 12.2 The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. I am an apostle. I meet all the criteria. The most verifiable one, which is the miracles. I abounded in signs and wonders, miracles, demonstrating that I'm an apostle of Christ. Now, a tangent note, I'm not going to go on uh, you know, too long on this rabbit trail, but this shows how uh, the modern-day charismatic phenomena is not based on the scriptures. The purpose of these signs, so we're confirmed the apostles. Apostles are dead. They were unique offices. They were temporary for New Testament Christianity. Right? So, Miracles, you don't need miracles to confirm the Bible. The Bible affirms itself. It's a self-attesting truth. Gives witness to itself. Scripture is sufficient. Apostles are gone, therefore miracles are gone. These men were called by God uniquely and Apostle Paul was one of them. Now these men were entrusted with four responsibilities. They were stewards, entrusted with four tasks. We'll go through them one by one. Number one, the apostles of Christ Jesus were entrusted with the true knowledge of God. Their job was to keep this true knowledge of God, to guard it with their lives, protect it, and to proclaim it tirelessly, fearlessly. Our Lord came and proclaimed and manifested to them the true and full name of God, the character of God, the nature, essence of God. 1 Timothy 6, here is Paul's inspired description of God. He is the only sovereign the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul says, the sovereign King, Lord of lords, He dwells in light that is so brilliant and so dazzling, it is unapproachable. Unapproachable. 
Man's eyes cannot endure it. Therefore, no one can see God. No one has ever seen God or can see God. This is a very common description of the dwelling place of God. Heaven is constantly represented as a place of the most pure and brilliant light. So much so in heaven there is no need for halogen lamps. No need for torches or flashlights. No need for fire. Why? No need for the sun or the moon or stars. Because God is light. He dwells in light. And everyone will live in light of God's glorious light. Revelation 21, 23 through 24. Isn't always good just to, in the midst of our lives, just ponder upon heaven for even just a short while. Ponder upon what heaven is like. Apostle John says, The city, the New Jerusalem, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the lamp, lamb, and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Revelation 22.5, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. They will reign forever and ever. Ezekiel 1.4 and 5, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning, surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and the fire was what looked like four living creatures in blazing light. That is how God is. And so men, because of our depravity, because of our sinfulness, because of our utter evil, we can approach that light. We are shut up in darkness Without truth, without knowledge, man, apart from God, walk around blind with our hands outstretched. We are helpless, left to ourselves in our pride, evil, and wickedness. We suppress the truth that God has given to us through general revelation, through our conscience. So in our depravity, we create and fashion an image of God, and we worship it instead of worshiping God. And mankind, drunk with pride, speculates and makes arbitrary conclusions about the nature and will of God. So, so man, ever since the beginning of time, have tried to describe God, explain God, to codify characteristics of God based on man's foolish wisdom and man's experiences. So the best thinkers of this world have posited the following. In a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, a lot of wars, rumors of wars, minor suffering, macro suffering, men kind of said, God doesn't care. God is not loving. I know who God is. God is cruel. He's a wicked despot. In light of my experiences in this world, in light of what I've experienced in my family, in my friends, in light of what has Currently happening, God is evil. God is not powerful. Some have said God doesn't exist. God can't exist. In a lot of the cruel sufferings of this world, even Christians have 
succumb to this influence of the of the world and and uh, give give in and compromise doctrines like open theism, where they say the lesser glory of God. God is not all powerful. God is not all knowing. He's still figuring out, figuring it out. He's learning with us as we go on in in life. That was our predicament. We were in darkness, unable to approach God in His brilliant light. But God did not leave us in that darkness as we deserve. God in His kindness and grace gave man glimpses of His true nature, His true character. He gave us glimpses of His will. Through the prophets, God the Father gave us limited rations, rationed views of Himself. Uh, Exodus 3. Remember, I am who I am. Moses said, show me your glory. Tell me your name. In Exodus 3, Moses asked for the Father's name, God's name. In Exodus 33, Moses said, okay, you give me your name. I've served you faithfully and brought your people out of Egypt. Show me your glory. Can I see you? And what was God's response? No man can see me and live because of your sins. I'll put you on a cleft on a rock and my glory, my presence will pass by you. But I will block your face, block your eyes so that you won't see me or you will die. But after I pass by, you'll see a fading remnant of my glory. And that's the best I can do for you. Without the cross, I can just give you limited glimpses of my glory. So prophets were faithful. Old Testament, giving us snapshots of God's character, God's attributes, God's will. The full and true knowledge of God was still hidden until the incarnation of God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 1. This is the glory of Christ's incarnation. Mankind had limited glimpses of God. And here is the blazing glory of God through Jesus the Son. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Verse 3, Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, go down to verse 9, A true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. If the world did not know Him, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right, power, the authority to become the child of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, go down to verse 16, And, the, and from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Law was given through Moses, 
grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now here is verse 18. Here's a thunder of verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Exodus 33.20 to Moses, you cannot see my face. You're the most humble man. You're a unique lawgiver, unique prophet of God, where I speak to you figuratively face to face. But even you, Moses, you cannot see my face. John 1.18, no one has seen God except Jesus Christ. And He has made Him known. This declaration definitively tells us the superiority of the revelation of Jesus above that of any previous dispensation. It is said here that our Lord had an intimate personal knowledge of God, which Moses nor any of the other ancient prophets had possessed. God is invisible, no human eyes had ever seen Him, but Christ had a direct, immediate, and personal knowledge of God. We express this, this phrase ourselves, right? I saw it with my own eyes. I know that person. Personally, that's Christ. Not an audible voice, not dreams and visions. Our Lord saw God with His own eyes. Our Lord knew Him, the Father, intimately and communally. Completely, and he was therefore fitted to make a full manifestation of God. The prophets delivered what they heard God speak. Jesus spoke what he knew of God as his equal, understanding his full nature. This verse tells us that our Lord had a knowledge of God above that which any of the other prophets had. They're all but shadows when compared to the full glory revealed through Christ, God's Son. Our Lord is not simply giving us an upgraded revelation of God. It is not Windows 98 to Windows 2000. It's not Windows XP to Vista. No. Completely other. From the moment of Jesus' incarnation, seeing Jesus was seeing the Father. Hearing Jesus was hearing the Father. Knowing Christ is knowing God. Believing in Christ is believing in God. John 7.29 I know Him, for I come from Him. John 8.19 His enemies said, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. John 12.45 Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. John 14.7 If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. Jesus said to him, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Colossians 1.15, therefore Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. 2 Corinthians 4.6 For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, 
has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In the face of Christ, we have the knowledge of the glory of God. So knowing Christ is knowing God and His glory. This revelation of God, hidden in the past, only glimpses in the past, was brought by Christ. And He entrusted this priceless treasure to the apostles. He has given it to them, for them to know, to protect, and to proclaim to this world. This knowledge of God is a priceless treasure. A priceless treasure. People say knowledge is power. And it's true. Knowledge is powerful. And it's very valuable. If I were to tell you, I know right now which stock is going to triple in the next year. Some of you will pay me good money for that information. If I were to tell you, I know this secret diet, guaranteed, you'll lose 10 pounds in a, two weeks with, without any effort. Some of you, I'll make a lot of money right, in this world. If I were to tell you, I know the information to get your kid into a great college. Right? Valuable information. The knowledge of God is worth more than all of these. If your heart craves after the aforementioned information, that shows what's in your heart. Right? You value money, so you want information that will get you money. Right? You value beauty, so you want information that will get you greater beauty. You esteem achievement or success, so you want information that will get you success, and so you value that information. But for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, This knowledge of God is priceless. It's worth more than life itself, this knowledge of God. Matthew 16, 26, Christ said, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his life? This knowledge will grant the man to save his soul. John Piper is right. God is the gospel. That's right. The good news is the knowledge of God. That's the priceless treasure. Whoever has this true knowledge of God, brought by Christ, given to the apostles, passed down to us through the scriptures, has the gospel and has eternal life. Worth more than anything in this world. John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. What is eternal life? It's not streets, you know, paved with gold. It's not, you know, angels singing. It's not all these external things that the world wants to entice us with. Heaven is God. God is heaven. And that is eternal life. This knowledge of God is the most precious thing in all the world. A.W. Ping said, a spiritual saving, true knowledge of God is the greatest need of every human creature. Therefore, it is to be our greatest boast in life. 
our singular honor, glory, boast in life is that God has given us this true knowledge. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. For I am Yahweh who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. This was our Lord's, one of our Lord's crucial missions while He was on the earth. To make the Father known. To proclaim and faithfully manifest God the Father. And He did exactly this. Verse 18, He has made Him known. Luke 10, 22 through 24. Amazing verses here. Luke 10, 22 through 24. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one who, no one who knows, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it. Hear what you hear and did not hear it. This knowledge of God, many prophets long for this knowledge. King David wanted to see the glory of the Father. King Solomon. All these great men and women of God in the Old Testament long to know this truth kept hidden from them the full revelation of God the extent of God's love the extent of God's justice as revealed by the cross of Christ it was hidden from them but we are blessed it was made known to the apostles and through them made known to us John 17 remember our study in John 17 John 17, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Verse 8, I have given them the words you gave me. John 17, 26, I made them, I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known. That was the first responsibility of the apostles. The full revelation of God to keep it, protect it, proclaim it, and entrust it to us right? without compromise, without taint, without corruption. Time we have remaining, let's go to the second responsibility of the apostles. Second responsibility, the apostles of Christ were entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel. Right? They were given the task of preaching the gospel. Acts twenty twenty four. Paul said, I did not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. What is the ministry that Paul received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God? This ministry was entrusted to me by the Father through Jesus Christ. 
Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The apostles were commissioned to preach the gospel. The true, complete, authoritative gospel of Christ, death, resurrection, and ascension were entrusted to him, and they were commissioned to faithfully proclaim it to their dying breath. That is why Paul said in Romans 1.14, I am under obligation to Greeks and Jews. Romans 15, 15 and 16, I have written to you boldly because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus in the priestly service of the gospel of God. 1 Corinthians 1.17, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, he was under compulsion. The apostles were under compulsion to preach the gospel. They had no choice in the matter. It was not up to them. They were ordered, commanded to proclaim the gospel. This is why, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9, 16. 1 Corinthians 9, 16 Hear what Paul says. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. How do we understand verse 16? Paul says, I have no ground for boasting. Right? Down in verse 17, if I did this on my own will, I have a reward, but I don't. Because this is not my choice. I didn't enlist to be a Christian. I didn't enlist to be an apostle. This was laid upon me. Necessity is laid upon me. My preaching is in a manner that's inevitable for me. I was called into this ministry in a miraculous manner. I was addressed personally by the Lord Jesus. I was going to arrest Christians, but Christ met me on the road and He arrested me. He commanded me to go and preach. No debate, no hesitancy. I am compelled to preach. I am under Christ's direct command. Therefore, when I preach the gospel, I can't say, yes, my reward. Man, I'm doing God's will. Why? Because I'm not, I didn't choose to do this. God chose me to do it. No boasting. In fact, if I do not preach the gospel, woe to me. Woe to me because I am directly disobeying Christ's direct command upon me, upon my life. I am removing God's authority over me and rebelling against His rightful place as Lord over my life. I'll be a wretch. I'll be under condemnation. I'll be judged if I do not preach the gospel. Verse 17, if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. This work must be done. I must preach the gospel. Verse 18, then what then is my reward? How can I please the Father in that way? How can I get a reward from the Father? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. 
So he can't take credit for preaching the gospel, but he can boast, he can get reward in how he preaches it. He has the right to be supported for his gospel ministry, but because he's compelled to preach, he will support himself. He will not make use of this right. Support himself that he will have a reward in preaching the gospel. All the apostles were given this commission to preach the gospel of Christ. That's two out of the four duties, responsibilities that were entrusted to the apostles by Christ. A lot of teaching today. Right? Last week, 80% teaching. Today, about 90% teaching. Next Sunday, 90% application. Right? In light of what the apostles were entrusted with, true knowledge of God, preach the gospel of Christ, set the foundation of the church, Jews and Gentiles together. Number four, imitate Christ. True Christ-likeness, true godliness. Next week it will all be application. Implications to us, each of us, as we imitate the apostles. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, as they have imitated Christ. Let's pray. Lord, what do we, how do we close our time this morning? What do you desire for us to meditate and consider as we close our time studying in the Word? Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures will lead us the truths that you want us to learn you want us to understand you want us to appropriate Lord as we have studied one of your key missions in your incarnation was to reveal and manifest demonstrate, declare true knowledge of God that was hidden in the Old Testament revealed through Christ to the apostles and through the apostles to all of us Lord we pray that we would value these truths. These truths that pertain to your character, to your nature, your plans, your will. May we guard it with our lives. May we pursue this knowledge. May we seek a greater understanding of you through your scriptures. May we humbly seek to be more and more God-like in our ways. And may we be faithful in our mental apprehension, understanding of you, and in our and how we represent you in our speech. May we be consistent, accurate, faithful, with surgical precision, be faithful to the Holy Scriptures so that we will do our part in preserving these truths, this knowledge of God, the next generation of believers. We thank you for using your humble servants and using Apostle Paul for your own glory and for using him as an instrument to edify and bless your church today. In your son's name we pray. Amen.